Look, Ed, just speak to your mum very quickly. It's not. It's my. It's Cat's mum. So, uh, welcome to episode 13 of the uh, Digital Doctor podcast. Uh, I'm, I'm Wai Kyung and I'm joined today by our usual host, um, Ed and Stephen. Um, I'm I said, really glad to be back after my exams and um, since I'm still fresh from my exams and fresh from a lot of uh, revision, I thought we could have an episode about um, everyday education of doctors who are working. So... Hi guys, how have things been without me? Good, amazing. No, I'm joking. I really, no, no. <laughs> I really enjoyed. We, we the last miss you. I really enjoyed the last episode on productivity, so I thought I'd better get back into the action again. Yeah, you're back in. So how so were the, the exams anyway? The exams are all right. I think we'll have to wait and see. We'll make the announcement on our next episode or the one after. I mean, so we, the, we should actually clear this up. You. You are actually the most senior out of all of us in terms of medical career. So even though you're, you know, the prodigal the trainee. trainee and you've just finished exams, these aren't medical exams. These are your, you know, your postgraduate, bona fide, hardcore. So probably the best way of describing it is these are the exams to give me the license to become an independent consultant. Wow. Mm. Good wow. luck. <laughs> Scary thoughts. When do you get the results? Um, in two and a half weeks time. Oh, that's pretty quick. It is. Yeah. We'll, have to put out, we'll have to put out a special episode just saying whether you passed or failed or not. <laughs> we should actually, I don't know if you're willing to do this, Wei-Kyung, but we could have you on the show live opening the letter. <laughs> it's not a letter. That's a bit old what fashioned, isn't it? <laughs> what century are you from? <laughs> well, we could screencast you going to the website in that case. Oh dear. So many options. <laughs> So the idea of this episode started mainly because um, I clearly had a lot of revision sessions with a lot of my bosses during the process of revising for this exam. And I realized the absolute best part about the revision process this time was um, when me and my colleagues and maybe about kind of three or four of us went through case studies and went through um, questions beforehand and actually during the session that we had with my bosses, we actually uh, then went through the answers, um, but but that was so much more powerful and enriching because the, the, the consultant was acting much more as a facilitator rather than a teacher just you know spewing out knowledge. So I just wondered, and then I reflected that all my education as a postgraduate, things like our monthly training days or our weekly seminars, are just all someone standing in front teaching us and very little of the information actually goes in and you don't feel like you've had any ownership of the knowledge. So I thought, is there any way we can use technology to recreate the experience, enriching experience that I had during my revision session, but as kind of business as usual, just not something that we do because of our exams. I mean, I don't know what you think, Stephen, as part of your, your training in neurology so far. Yeah, um, I'm really interested in this kind of stuff. So I really think that all of the learning methods that exist at the moment don't really pay very much attention to how the brain learns. Mm. And I think that if we take heed of some of that, and this is something that we were trying to do with PodMedics, wasn't it, Ed, about you know, trying to, to w use the brain's own m mechanism for learning 
to its advantage. Yeah, definitely. And and I, I mean, a big thing for me is, as you're saying, Waikyong, you know, sitting for an hour's lecture, listening to someone talk about a topic, you know, that's very common in postgraduate um, training. Mm. Um, but, but actually, um, something that I have come to now re- to realize is actually what people want is a short summary, but with, with the major points um, in a sort of foundation type framework. So, you know, five to 10 minutes, like blitzing the facts, which they could watch over and over again if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, but the actual real educational value then comes from taking that information and applying it to a novel situation, a situation one's not totally comfortable with. And it's just exactly how things are set up with medical school. You know, you go to medical school, you get all this teaching, and then you arrive on the wards and like very little, like you've got that foundation, but you actually need to figure out what to do. Um, so you've got that sort of on the job training. And that's very similar, I, I think, probably for the way now, what I think is the best way to learn is, yes, you have to have the facts, you have to have the information, um, but on the other hand, you have to also be able to integrate it. And I think the best way, and to test yourself and to, to, to find out what other people know, and the best way to do that is definitely face-to-face. Um, I mean, I haven't done any postgraduate exams, so I can't really talk about that. But when I was an undergraduate, um, for finals, I actually did very little book revision. Uh, I basically, because this was quite fun, I basically um, did questions when I needed to do sort of online questions where I needed to learn the facts. And then preparing for paces, oskis, whatever, um, or just generally more revision. I just sit around with a group of people and we'd look at images on a big screen and each person would just talk about it and then we'd pool our knowledge together. And that worked so well. Um, so I really do understand what you mean when you say, oh, this peer-to-peer learning is incredibly powerful. Yeah, and there's also something about um, the number of trainees uh, versus um like the target audience. The thing about medical school, I find, is that you can build resources um, for, you know, 200 people at one time. But, but as you get more and more narrow in postgraduate training, your number of trainees shrink quite a lot. Like, for example, in, in medical school, you can uh, create a lecture or you create a series of case studies and you can use it on, you know, 250 people. The thing about how we are trained once we you know, get onto the hospitals is that, for example, in, in my specialty in hematology in my place, there are only 10 trainees in one hospital, and that is considered a lot. So the, the, the teacher has to put in the same amount of effort for those 10 people, often as if they will have to do it for 100 people. And when you go to even smaller hospitals, when they only have two, three trainees, the, eff, the, you know, the number of effort per trainee becomes even higher. Um, and however, the advantage of having, you know, a small ratio of trainee to trainer is that you get much more personalized teaching, but that doesn't, that doesn't really happen because people still think of the traditional way of teaching, which you stand in front and, and, and teach people. So I was wondering, you know, is there any way of, of, if you like, crowdsourcing the teaching aids so that different people can apply the teaching aids, but, but, um, but the teaching aids are only created once by, by a smaller group of people that more, a lot of people can use. Well, this sort of thing is happening a lot in education at the moment. I mean, almost every week we've got a new site springing up, um, which is based upon this idea of, you know, remote tutoring and stuff like that. Where Written by you? Uh, no, no, not written by me. Well, actually, I am working on one at the moment, but it's not. It's, mm. a, client, it's a client project. Mm. Um, but they're, they're springing up all the time. Um, and it started off by companies like Skillshare, um, 
Udemy, this kind of thing, where they were um, originally started posting, you know, just series of video tutorials, but then have now moved away from that and moved much more to a more focused um, individual led live type session. Um, and the technology, you know, just look at Skype, which we're using to record this with right now. I mean, Skype is so powerful um, and all the other platforms as well to be able to, you know, have small groups remotely and, and to learn. So I think definitely there from the technological side, we've reached a, a good state um, and there are issues, um, there are complexities, but we've reached a good state where actually now we can start doing these things more remotely. And with that remoteness comes the ability to, um, you know, not have the problem which you mentioned, which was one teacher in one hospital delivering something very complicated that takes a lot of preparation just to two people, but being able to share it with a much wider audience. Yeah, and I, I don't personally think the technology itself really is an issue, but I don't feel that the people that is conducting our training at the moment think about different ways of teaching when because you know that's how they've done it when they were learning and um uh, and i just wondered who who has the responsibility of thinking out of the box of delivering this um would that be the you know would that be a hospital would that be the royal colleges would that be um I don't know, one of the new, uh, what they call let these local education training providers or something like that. Because I think that's the real opportunity here. Uh, I don't know, you probably know that the whole of um, delivering healthcare professional training in this country is changing, the way it is commissioned and the way it's funded. And I think it's a real opportunity for them to shake things up and to do things differently. I think the natural person to, or, or organisation to take this on would be Medical Education England. They're the new body that that uh, governs um, medical education in postgraduate medical education in the UK. Or you, well, you not. could well you could argue that they are actually the last people to do it because the idea of the model at the moment is meant to be much more localized, and that different lead education providers need to actually bid for the right to train, and to bid for the right to train, they need to demonstrate to if you like the commissioners of the education that what they are providing is new is innovative and provide good value of money with good training outcomes for the people they want to train so you know it's no longer the the deanery you know who which performance is not measured and they can go on doing what they like and there's no competition the idea is that they commission education and different organizations like big universities big hospitals could bid the right to train yeah. So they have to demonstrate that they are doing something different. And I, and I think it might be a real opportunity here to shake things up a bit because I just think at the moment, is I don't think things, mm-hmm. I think things can be better. Yeah, I think it come, it, it's two-way really, isn't it? So, I mean, the deaneries will no longer exist. And as you no. mentioned, the, the local education providers will make a bid for training. So I think that, yes, the innovation can come from the ground up, can come from these local education providers. But um, but also it's up to Medical Education England to pick the right person and whatever metric they use to judge the quality of a bid needs to take into account innovation and not price. just... Yeah, exactly. Not just price. <laughs> <laughs> not just price. But that's very difficult to assess. I yeah. mean, in innovation, you can only really be as innovative as the person assessing your innovation. Mm, that's the thing. Yeah, because... You know, and and there's only so many you know so many people who are going to be doing. I mean, my my suspicion is is that the same 
people doing it now will still continue doing it just under a different umbrella or just under a different term because that's you know that's the status quo and it's very you know you're not going to suddenly find all these startups pinging out of the ground oh we specialize in medical education but and we have this one advisor but we do all of the we produce all the resources i don't think that's going to happen I mean, it's mainly to do in London, especially it's economies of scale. So originally the first year, there was a lead provider that came from UCL Partners mm-hmm. that had the responsibility from educa- education in the North West Thames and North Central Thames, uh, I believe. And then there was an, uh, another bid from East of London that did North East Thames, and that came out of a consortium from um, Barts and London. Mm. And I think they've all merged now. So UCL Partners has uh, almost almost a monopoly of London medical education. <laughs> and with their their might, they are able to make a bid that's far superior and, f- and far more organised than, than any other educational lead provider. And mm. that doesn't necessarily take into account how innovative they are, unfortunately. But they are, they're very good. And uh, they're all a progressive bunch of people. And I think they're doing a really great job so far. <laughs> so i mean i i guess my my kind of simple vision you know forget all the posh tech uh that is possible out there it's really simple well, that's um, me out, that's me out then <laughs> so so think of a very simple example let's say i want to learn about you know um blood clotting okay tests for blood clotting that we use on a daily basis. Uh, what I can do is I can go and watch a half an hour talk that gives me the principles of it uh, beforehand and that's generated by one person in the whole of North London where the whole of North London trainees can watch. And then there's a set of questions uh, that you can try to do after that talk. So there'll be a bank of questions that will be set by a handful of picked um, you know, lecturers or anyone who can contribute to it. And the questions that are very that become very popular, that shows good value of um, um, helping to build the foundation's knowledge, will be used for the more personalized teaching that can happen on a local level. So if I'm in a local hospital where I only have two trainees and don't really have the time to spend a lot of time creating the questions or the resources, all I need to do is tell my, uh, tell my trainees, um, okay, um, next week we'll be learning about blood clotting tests. Can you make sure you had a watch of the blood clotting YouTube video and do questions one, three, and seven, and we'll go through one, three, and seven next week. And that, is so much more powerful and useful than than um, what uh, we are doing today, and and that was literally as basic as I could imagine it. But that's, so, uh, but I don't see anybody doing that. So, Wakeon, why why what was it about that experience? Did that you, you know me- mechanically? What was it about that experience that you thought helped? I think first thing is I could listen to the lecture when I'm ready to listen to the lecture. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can do that in my own time. I can do that at working time, but there's time set aside. If there are particular areas that I don't really get, I can rewind and go forward. And then in the process of doing the questions after I've had my 30 minutes of knowledge, I you then, of course, trigger the parts of your mind, the parts of your thinking, which is not entirely obvious when you're listening to the lecture. And when you then sit around with four other colleagues discussing the answers with, together with your lecturer, which now effectively becomes a facilitator, you also see the thinking process. You don't only learn the knowledge, but the thinking process of your other colleagues. 
and how they approached it. And when the lecturer finally actually steps in and gives you their take on how they view it, you're not only learning about the, the knowledge, because you, but you're also learning about an approach to thinking and an approach to problem solving. And when you have made a mistake you are more, and, and been corrected, you're more likely to remember it than if someone just tells you so-called the correct way of answering something. And the, the amazing thing, of course, is that the trainer did not have to do anything to prepare for that session at all. They just needed to show up because they already have the knowledge to teach you and to help you the, through the thinking process. That's amazing. I picked out a number of things there, and I think that mm. um, this, and Ed, you'll definitely resonate with this because I know this was the, some of the talks when we're talking about the notes system in Podmenix um, that, we, that we wanted to bring to education. But the first one, the first thing you said that I liked was that you could watch uh, or you could choose when to learn when it suited you. And we, we all know that in you know schools of uh, educational theorists, there's a, a, a theory called Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And essentially, mm -hmm. it's like a little big pyramid. So you have to you have to feel safe on one level that you're not going to be threatened. You have to have your basic needs taken care of, like you're not hungry or thirsty or need the loo. Um, you also need to be not distracted. Um, and, and, and it goes on and on. And only once you're in, you know, the, the, the correct environment and all the holes in the Swiss cheese line up, are you actually going to be able to learn something? Mm, mm. And I think that's important because often in a lecture, it's not the right time for everybody to learn that time that someone else arbitrarily uh, decides to, to hold a lecture. So I think the online resources give you the flexibility whether you want to re revise at three in the morning or, you know, or first first thing in the day. Um, to be able to choose when you learn and, and get the best chance to actually remember something. The other thing was that repetition. So we know that the more yep. you repeat something, the more likely you are to remember it. And you strengthen those neural pathways that, that are encoded. The other thing is encoding. So the more elaborately you encode, so memories um, are based on a process of encoding, storage, retrieval, and forgetting. So the more elaborately you encode a memory, the more likely you are to be able to store it and then retrieve it later. Yeah. And using different kinds of media, whether that be audio or visual or actually a practical scenario, um, help to encode that piece of information more robustly. And also things are quite situation dependent. So if you are, uh, for example, I think there was this crazy experiment where they stuck people in the water in wetsuits and then did a memory test and found that uh, and compare them with people on the shore and they found that, that memory is state dependent. So if you learn something uh, and you're wet, you're more likely to remember it when you're wet. And if you learn something <laughs> when you're drunk, you're more likely to remember it when you're yeah, drunk, that kind exactly. of thing. Yeah. <laughs> so there's no argument for that as well. And I can't remember the last time that I, uh, when I needed to use a piece of medical knowledge, it was in a lecture theatre, other than to impress my <laughs> colleagues, which, which rarely happens. And there's one more thing about using kind of uh, uh, this kind of approach where the the trainer acts as more as a facilitator, which is that you can use the same scenario and same questions, whether you are dealing with a first year trainee or a final year trainee, it's just the depth of thinking and approach that needs to change and adapt, which I thought that was really interesting because I was reflecting, how would I answer these same questions three years ago? How would I answer my questions now? And how would I answer them in five years time? And I think it would be all different. And yet you can use exactly the same scenario because at the end of the day, 
patients and medical conditions don't really change. But it's the way that we approach it and the level that we are when we approach it in terms of whether we are junior doctor or whether you're senior, senior junior doctor or whether you're a consultant is different. But the case remains exactly the same. So uh, I'm quite excited about that whole idea and I actually wondered whether there's a possibility that is within my little field of hematology, which, you know, it is quite a small subspecialty that if we can get enough people together, this might be a very interesting approach to change the way we are trained because I just don't think we're being trained well enough. <laughs> the other thing is I'm in quite interested in simulation um, because mm. you see in other kind of professions like fire firefighters, for example, they're forever doing drills and and, and sort of simulations of different uh, environments. And let's face it, medicine isn't that difficult. Mainly, it's pattern recognition. Um, but when something goes horribly wrong, you do need to know what to do very quickly in an almost sort of automatic, automated process. So I think that that things dedicated to pattern recognition and automated patterns of behaviour are only going to improve doctors on the wards i mean I, I think that's the way forward don't you think one of the problems about not it's not a problem but one of the requirements of simulation is quite labor intensive yeah but um, that, I, that, I mean everyone when you say simulation everyone goes mental and starts thinking of uh, you know full immersion sims and and mannequins that sit up and vomit over your trousers that kind of thing i don't <laughs> think that's even necessary some of the best <laughs> teaching sessions i had were just sitting down with my consultant saying right uh patient comes in they've got this this and this, and this. Uh, what are you thinking? What tests are you going to order? That kind of thing. I think simulation needs be no more um, in-depth than that. I see. And you can actually build, um, if you're really good at it, you can actually build case studies in such a way that the facilitator can actually think of multiple scenarios. So it's your, your, your case study does not have to go down a linear path. Yeah, okay. Like uh, one of those books, like the interactive books. You know, if you if you take the path to the left, skip to page fifty six. If you go to the right, <laughs> go to page eighty. Oh do, no, do but, but, but I'm quite serious about it. I think it's it's it, it will be quite fun, and then you can just go through the same case over and over and over and over again. But they all have a different story every time, and you have to think on your feet again. Well, you could do that very easily with the web application. You could. Yeah. You could have a, you could have branching branching questions. You know, so patient comes in with pulmonary edema. And then you give them some morphine and then, you know, they start vomiting. What do you do then? And, you know, you could theoretically create, a, you know, branching uh, type question system. I'd love um, it to be one of those text based games. <laughs> <laughs> give morphine. Give morphine. Yeah, I don't, want to, I don't want to be the one doing the passing of the things people enter, though. So, Stephen, have you had a really, really kind of uh, powerful teaching experience that you remember? Well, me delivering it or me receiving it? Are you <laughs> receiving it? <laughs> uh, you receiving it? Me, I'm sure, I'm sure if you'd asked me this question early and I'd prep for it, I'd come up with something really great. But I can't really think of anything that sticks out. Actually, probably the best kind of lectures I've had um, consist of short bursts of information. So I'm not thinking of one specific time here, but I'm just thinking uh, the, the kind of way I like to learn. So they basically, I like having a gist first. So I like saying the point of this is, uh, the, po the point I'm trying to make is this, and I'm going to give you evidence or reasons supporting that point. So I like the gist and then the detail. And I like uh, a few of those gist detail repetitions, and then a summary, and then a break. 
and then another kind of block. So short bursts of information with the take home message delivered first. Because I think that focuses my mind onto what I'm trying to get out of the situation. So instead of just delivering a whole bunch of information at me and then to try and for me the whole time thinking what the hell is this guy getting at you know what what, what is he trying to tell me the guy uh, you know the, the lecturer will just stand there and say this is what I want you to know this is why we know this this is what was known before and these are the reasons that I'm giving you to support or refute that so my mindset once I've heard the gist first is completely different so now I'm evaluating the bits of information that he's giving me for their validity and I think that helps me remind uh, helps me remember things a lot better, um, rather than trying to work out what what the point of of this these five PowerPoint slides actually is. Uh, I don't tend to do well with uh, lots of PowerPoint slides one after the other. I actually remember a lot more from people who ad lib and talk about their experiences, yeah. give lots of personal um, opinions or stories. I think they help me encode information a lot better. And actually, I, I remember some of the, the things uh, that I'll always remember. And I can remember diagrams from A-levels that were drawn from bio, bio, you know, biology or chemistry teacher on an OHP and explained. Mm. And I was, you know, I always used to sit near the front of the class, um, <laughs> not, not, not being teacher's Of course you did. <laughs> e, e, e. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I mean, I, I can remember some of those, di- those diagrams to this day. And I don't know what it was about that experience that, that means. And, you know, Khan Academy is quite similar, isn't it? Where he um, he actually draws um, some of the diagrams using a uh, a tablet pen. And I think that's mm. a similar experience. It's like one person, it feels like a one-to-one tuition. It's one person imparting knowledge. And you, you always get the feeling that you're learning something you don't yet understand, but you're about to. You're learning from a friend in a friendly environment. Um, and I think hearing the person talk, seeing the person, watching them draw something out, looking at the way that their ideas are interconnecting is some is really, really powerful for me. So do you think that, you know, if you were to have recorded that and put it on YouTube and so you don't have the such a, you don't feel that connection with the person right in front of you creating that drawing, would that, do you think that would break down some of the magic? Do you think digital actually yeah, can in the yeah, way I mean, of that? To pretend to pretend that a YouTube video is the same as sitting next to a person teaching you, um, I mean, I think that they are different. You have to acknowledge that. That's not to say that recording someone's lecture like that wouldn't be useful, and it is. And I've taken part in a couple of um, massively open online courses recently, or MOOCs, that do just that. So they try and recreate that experience, and they're very good at it. But it's never going to be the same as someone sitting next to you, because there's no it's always sort of one-way communication there's no you know wait slow down I don't quite get that bit can you please go over it again or perhaps explain it in a different way um you're never going to get that kind of interaction with a a YouTube video or even probably a web app Mm. but maybe but it's about having variety you know so yeah you know what I've tried to do with you know PodMedics is to provide as many possible learning mechanisms as I can to people who are learning. So, you know, yes, there's the videos and those are very, very short. I mean, our new guidelines is, you know, no video is allowed to be more than five minutes because people's attention spans just are not longer than that really um, when they're in front of their computer. That policy is not not flowing over to the podcast quite yet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's, I mean, for for externals, I, I allow myself a bit longer. Um, but uh and and then you know you've got you've got video 
and then you've got audio. So, so a lot of people don't want the video. They just want to be able to like listen to it in the car, the audio in the car, or listen to it on the bus and not watch the video or listen to it. Some of them listen to it like when they sleep, which is a bit creepy. Um, and then you need to provide other stuff as well. So, you know, questions in association with that. Like you were saying earlier, Wakong, you know, you watch the video, then do some questions to check your knowledge. And then the future, when you want to revise that subject, you can almost skip the video and just do the questions very quickly to, to mm. see whether you have remembered it. Um, and then things like notes as well. Um, being able to, you know, make notes on the episode or independently. Um, and something we've just added as well as activities. So being able with each specialty, you've got videos, questions, notes, be able to actually record your clinical experiences so that when you come back to that, you can just look at some activities that you did. Say you clocked a patient, for a cardiology patient, you might make a little note or a, about that or put in a link to a useful reference or something, something like that. Um, so I think it's about one, respecting that people, everyone's got different ways of learning. Mm. Um, and two, if you're developing a, a good platform, uh, it's all very well to say, well, I'm innovative and I'm this, but actually you need to respect that people have different ways of learning and provide as many different options on the same material as you can, not only because some people will like one and not the other, but also because actually having all of those different modalities in one place makes linking, as you are talking about earlier, makes the cross-linking of information uh, a lot richer. Yeah, and that, uh, that that speaks to me on so many levels. So yes, you need to provide different ways of learning because not everybody learns in the same way. Some people are more pragmatic. They're like going out there, doing stuff, trying to break it, trying to learn from their experiences where some people like to read the instruction manual um, and some people like to do it in a visual way they might like to do it, do it in a, an oral way um, that's where the ears uh, not the mouth and uh, some people like to, to read things and I think providing all of those things gives a wide range of options but actually if you're you know if you're quite smart um, you, you would try and use as many of those pieces of um, material as possible so that you could increase the amount of encoding that you, that you have and you might remember different parts of information from the different media types yeah and that's something which education is actually getting really right so um you know uh they have they do that so they crowdsource all different types of information for learning medicine in one place um you know so you could go to a specialty and you'll find you know a a podcast that someone's created you'll find just some slides that someone's created you'll find a text document that someone's created mm. you know you might just find an audio file or, or a reflection or something like that um so i mean that's that's great um for me though it's it's about consistency though a lot of it's consistency so you know how one thing how one modality relates to the other mm -hmm. um making sure that everything that you do have actually cross links effectively otherwise it just turns into a bit of a sort of a dump of stuff yeah and i think there's a, there's a risk of that isn't it in terms of the dump yeah. of stuff and the other thing the other challenge that i always think because i had this crazy idea a few years ago that i was just going to go to some of my lecturers and say look i've got a computer i've got a mic you've got a powerpoint slide mm -hmm. i'm just going to record you and put you on youtube what do you think and how scared did way. they get Sorry, no, no, no. No one was actually scared. I haven't actually done it. But the, one <laughs> of the re but one of the reasons I suppose I haven't done it is how do you deal with keeping things up to date? Like if you record someone speaking for half an hour about a particular topic, in two years' time that might be I don't know out of date. But only twenty percent might be out of date because the first part about you know the what is you know, follicular lymphoma that might not change very much, but 
an, an approach to treatment might have. So how do you deal with that? Yeah, I think yeah. you've already answered it because the guy that gives a follicular lymphoma talk gets wheeled out every time he needs to do that talk. And he does the same talk over and over again at different hospitals, at different times, different groups of trainees. So really, he should be keeping that follicular lymphoma talk up to date. And if you pull resources, if you crowdfund it in such a way, I mean, there were, there's a talk that probably happened today on follicular lymphoma somewhere. If that mm. was recorded, put online and made accessible in an open way to everybody, then the, it would kind of answer itself. You wouldn't really need to, to go and, and find the most, you know, you wouldn't need to have this resource that you constantly updated. Ed, do you remember the project that we spent a few days um, during one of my annual leaves making it was like a it was like a resource matching app yeah that's right um, yeah. we never finished it I don't think but it, it was, was called Hinfo yeah health info or something <laughs> oh, right. we're gonna call it um, I can't remember what we're gonna call it it had a really good name cutthroat health cutthroat health that's yeah it. it was basically a leader it was a fe- ephemeral leaderboard so basically um, if you pick a topic say heart failure um, you th- the crowd could log in through Twitter or Facebook and post a link and the link was to a resource um, be that a video or a Wikipedia document and and they were putting up there to say that this was a a good resource that you should go to and then that resource would be ranked against all the other resources based on how many clicks it got and based on whether people voted it up or down Mm -hmm. and there was a top five list and if a link fell out of the top five it would disappear forever Oh, right. And it would never come back unless someone reposted that link again. It's based mm. on like the sort of 4chan model. And um, it but, be- yeah, and, and that comes that comes back to the, the problem is, okay, so let's say Wakeyon did get his hematology person to go and record their video uh-huh. on follicular lymphoma and we were then to dump it onto YouTube. Yeah. Like that thing is going to get no exposure. Yep. No. So you, you have to have another place outside of these avenues of publication that allow effective validation, commenting, and coordination of this material. Yeah. Yep. Um, just posting something online is not going to get you anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it took in PodMedics, you know, PodMedics started in late 2007. You know, it took till 2009 really before it had any traction at all. And that was with 100 odd episodes on one site. You know, wow. so these things are very slow to, to develop. And, you know, it's not, I don't think we should kid ourselves when we say that, oh, okay, recording something so easy. I've got a microphone and a laptop and someone's got some slides and know something about a topic. So they should just record it and that's going to solve all the world's problems. Um, because actually technology is a bit of our enemy in this case. You know, there's, and that's where the idea for Cutthroat Health came from is we wanted to try and create a crowdsourced sort of place a medical place for the best resources for specific topics. Yeah, you need to cut um, through. The, I mean, the problem we face is that, that there's so much information. How do you know? I mean, if you just the topic follicular lymphoma, there are so many resources out there. How do you pick the ones that are good? Well, you can do it algorithmically. So you can have an algorithm that, that, that scores things and, and gets, you know, Google search essentially. So things that appear higher up in a Google ranking list might be a better resource than others. But there's all sorts of confounders like for example, if you search flu, you're going to get a load of stuff for patients and that's not really what you want. So this was an attempt to let uh, your peers decide for you by clicking, upvoting, downvoting, which links were the best. So if mm. a link wasn't worthy of being in the top five, it dropped out of all existence. 
and would never come back unless it was reposted. So it was an attempt to try and filter down the information and just get the top best five links as rated by your peers for this particular topic. Stephen, you're, you're persuading me to do it again now. Should we, should we stay up all night and just finish it? Oh, I'd love it. I'd love it. Let's do it. So a slight, a slight change of tact. Um, you know, we talk about simulation and we talk about role play and I, I, I see very good value in those kind of approaches to learning. Do you think we should start recording how we work in real life? like on our day-to-day basis and use that as a opportunity for learning. Okay, you said that and it's annoyed me. Firstly, okay. because exactly what I was going to say and I wanted to say it. <laughs> <laughs> but on the other hand, I think it's a fantastic idea. So um, we should, and this may come with the electronic patient record and I don't know whether it will or not, but basically, how do you know what you're good at? And when I was doing question banks for, for MRCP, um, I you, you get to realise that actually the things you thought you were good at and you thought you knew, maybe you didn't. And maybe there were things that you, you weren't aware of that you actually knew quite a lot about. And I've no idea where that knowledge comes from. But you get to, after you do enough questions, you know, a few thousand or so, you get to see your strengths and weaknesses. Mm. And without doing all of those questions, there's no way to see that, what things you're good at and what things you're not good at. I would love to use the electronic patient record to grade whether your diagnoses were in the end right, whether your management plans were in the end um, reasonable for a particular case. I think that would be fantastic. Okay, a, we, we need to get the electronic patient health record right first though. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, it's just what I'm thinking. <laughs> that, this is quite interesting. So what you said, um, so I think University Hospitals Birmingham, they are another one of those people that built their own electronic patient record. Mm-hmm. What they want to do is they want to capture during for their foundation year doctors, what cases do they see and towards the end of their training, what kind of cases they haven't seen. But because it, they run effectively almost a fully paperless hospital already and they capture your login and they also code the diagnoses and the presenting complaint of all the patients that come in. And, and they are basically thinking of an algorithm so you can actually track what kind of cases you've seen, what kind of cases you haven't. And then when you sit down with your educational supervisor, they can then tailor your experiences to make sure that everybody gets the minimum required. That sounds quite awesome. Cl- that's quite clever, isn't it? And My second and- ever blog post actually was about something like that. So I wanted mm-hmm. to use um, the experience of the current generation of FY1s to mm-hmm. inform the curriculum of the people that succeed them. So, for example, if there were things like if a group of FY1s did question banks or a teaching session and their knowledge, it was identified that there were gaps in their knowledge. Or, as you say, that they see certain cases, but they don't see other certain cases. So the, the medical schools are teaching bunches of people what they think they need to know. But actually, there's no feedback from the real world. Because often you, you finish your medical education from medical school, you go into a hospital and they say, actually, you don't need to know any of that kind of stuff really to get your job done. And these are the things that I think are important. That's what you get told on the first day by one of your seniors. And some of that stuff, not all of it, but some of it should be fed back into the medical education system, I think. And that can happen at many different levels, not just from FY1 to medical student. What's your blog, Stephen? Uh, it's my name, S-T-E-V-A-N and then C-W. So stevencw.com forward slash blog yeah i think so yeah will no. be, we'll be in the show it's now. not actually so, no. 
I've, um... on the same on the same theme um one of my friends once had a very very simple idea he says I, every time i see a patient in a and e i do not know what happens to them once they leave mm-hmm. so he says shouldn't it be normal since we we capture everything in a and e on on most a and e's now are very very digitized and you know the patients you see when the patients have their discharge summary done why shouldn't a notification goes to the person in A&E who saw the patient, and then they can just match up to see if what they think actually was what happened to the patient. Yeah. And I think that's such a simple idea then that actually it's not that hard to build. It's really important because now that we all do shift work, uh, or most of us do shift work, there's no continuity anymore. So you never get to see the same patient again, unless you Mm. are being proactive and you actually take the patient's name and details down store them in some completely insanely unsecure system like a piece of paper you put in your back pocket and then go and f- and and um and and search the patient afterwards to find out what happened to them so i, I when i was a medical as it show i suggested that our weekly wednesday afternoon teaching sessions uh were not that effective and i said once we should use one once a month we should just use that time where we are allowed to go onto the wards to read up about the patients that we clocked in during the acute admission takes. And I said, that would be much more useful than our education that we get. Uh, they didn't quite accept that. <laughs> I think I think it would. And, you know, when we do mortality and morbidity meetings, they're the same kind of thing, but when it's mm. all gone a bit wrong. But we never really celebrate our successes. So what things did we get right and, and what can we learn? How can we didn't have done things in a different way? And how can we incorporate what the patient feels about that as well? We never really, that information is just non-existent. I was looking at my um, blog post actually. So I I didn't actually say, I I said a lot of things, but I actually advocated for using a hospital. So a hospital has a sort of domain space. So all their internet internet traffic that comes out, you can actually uh, monitor. So um, what I wanted to, what I was advocating for is if you take the top read articles and most common Google searches, so some hospitals provide a, a resource like up to date or something like that. You could look at the most frequently viewed topics mm-hmm. and use that uh, as a sort of map of what things are common in the hospital or what things don't people know about. So why would you ever need to go onto the internet and read about a condition? Well, it's because you don't have the knowledge with you and, and maybe you can use that information to, to inform education. Mm. Yeah, and I, I guess that's the whole thing about once information is captured digitally, your 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 imagination is the limit. That's the only thing that sets the limit, isn't it? There is. Yeah. All right. Um, so, how do you do? You, do you think that this? I think that you a few of you mentioned it actually earlier on. How do you measure how good your particular teaching? Uh, you know, method is, you know, how do you measure quality of good teaching? If they come and, back. You mean as a lecturer or? Yeah, as a lecturer. Um, or like, how do you answer a very simple question of how well trained is this particular trainee? I guess um, the only kind of feedback you get directly is when you teach a group of students, and this is the same argument for the patients we were just having, is if you see them again and they are um, then presented with a question that your teaching would have addressed, and if they know the answer, then great, you've done your job, as far as I'm concerned. 
I think if you've got an engaged uh, audience um, uh, that are asking all all the kinds of right questions, they're interacting with you, not falling asleep, and they seem to be interested, and afterwards you get a few people come up and say, I really enjoyed that, then I think I've done a good job. Mm. But that's so abstract because, you know, some teaching styles don't suit some people. I mean, you're not going to have the universal, you know, not, not everybody suits everybody. No, that's just that's very true um and when you do get feedback um when i've done lectures for for medical schools you 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 get a mixed bag actually you get to see where the prevailing win is and what most people think and actually most people tend to agree with each other but you always get one or two that didn't like prezi or whatever you or the yeah. way that you delivered a, a particular piece of information they may have been confused about the way that you presented arterial blood gases for example and you're never going to you're never really gonna um, to please. You're never gonna please everybody, and I guess that's going back to our point about variety and how it's so important because different people learn in different ways. And just the nature of human interactions. You know, some. You know, I've had this before where I've, I've gone to a lecture and I've sat down, and as soon as the lecturer start started speaking, I've disliked that person for whatever reason, and I just switch off for the rest of the time. Um, and that's not because I'm a particularly difficult person. Um, I think everybody has sort of very complicated interactions with other people and make do make these sorts of snap judgments which determine how how effective their learning is going to be um, and that can come from their personality it can come from their previous teachers it can come from their previous knowledge it can come from what they're hoping to get out of something so I don't think it is the case that there is this sort of universal panacea this is an example of good teaching and this is what we should strive for I guess a good teacher is is one who manages to get the maximum educational efficiency in terms of the content when educational goals delivered to what to a high percentage per person um i think that's it it's a very complicated area but is it or could it be as simple as a a maybe you don't have to say a good teacher but a good uh, teaching approach like um one of the things that i realized that when i was revising for my part two exams was that I've heard a rumor that a certain part of the country has not had a single candidate fail the part two exam for the last five years when the pass rate is 60%. There are always these rumors there, aren't there? It's the same in medical school. I can think of all sorts of corrupt reasons why that might be. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying anything. But yeah, I mean, you're going to get this variation in teaching quality. Um, And what is it about that experience at that particular place that makes the training so good is it sheer brute force and time is it the the technology they're using is it the structure of their lectures is it the lecturers um i think you know only by looking at those kinds of things and this is why going back to our original point about who should whose responsibility is this medical education england should be looking at this kind of stuff right so seeing you know which centers have got high pass rates for this what 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 different local education providers are doing uh what things are uh, innovative what things work well what do trainees like that kind of stuff should all be taken into an account and they should share the knowledge they're in a perfect position to feed the rest of the the local education providers um the uh, knowledge about good practices in other areas and so too do, do individuals who think they're doing something well and have got evidence for it we should be sharing the same thing too and i guess that's the reason for medical education uh, conferences like uh, amy and asmi so, um, of course, now um, Medical Education England is no longer called Medical Education England, but called it Health. it's called Health Education England. And the difference is that 
they are trying to train all healthcare professionals the same. What I mean by that is that the same responsibility for educating doctors, the same organization would be given the same responsibility to teach the nurses, the physiotherapists, the pharmacists. Yeah. They, they want they want a more multi-professional approach to learning. And I wonder what you thought about that. It's probably best that I don't say what my thoughts are, Stephen. <laughs> no, no, go on, share. <laughs> I think that is highly politically driven and politically correctness driven. Um, I think, you know, doctors still do hold you know, more responsibility than a lot of other healthcare professionals. Um, and their training in a way has to be different, I think, you know, just classing it all under one thing. It, yeah, it, it, it sounds great, doesn't it? You know, we're all the same physios, nurses, and, but actually, you know, we do have different needs, different requirements, different training uh, that leads to that point, different ways of learning, you know, and I think just to bunch everybody together is perhaps not doing justice to what one might regard as best medical educational practices. I agree with you, except that I think we've probably gone too far with regards to how how we are trained is fine, but there must be more cross-professional training. Because whenever we, we manage a patient, it's inevitably in partnership with the nurses, with the physios, especially now as, as medicine becomes much more chronic disease management. Uh, and I've realized that I cannot manage a patient properly now on the ward without the constant input from the physiotherapist, from the pharmacist. I, I just can't go it alone, if you like. But at the I, same I, time, yeah. I, yeah. I agree. And, I agree with what you're saying that, you know, multi-professional skills, working within teams and understanding how each of us works is an important thing. But I don't think it's so important that we ed now educate everyone in exactly the same way. No, I don't think that's the point of saying they should educate everyone in the same way. But I think there must be more uh, ability to learn, more opportunities to learn together. Like, for example, in the, all the simulation training that that you get that's going on you know, for the surgeons and for emergencies, it is, by definition, a multi-professional learning environment. Yeah. yeah. And and as you say, that the different uh, professions have different skills and they also have different learning needs. And that's the same for working with a patient on the ward. So each group of professionals need different things from each other. And, you know, without doing being very experienced and doing a lot of multidisciplinary team meetings, it's difficult to get a real grasp on what the physio or the occupational therapist or the social worker might need from you as a clinician. Mm, mm. So I don't think it would change the way we learn our specialty but I think um, as such, but I think there should be some recognition of the fact that we are now working with, as you say, chronic disease patients and, and in a more multi-professional way and perhaps have separate sessions um, where, we, where we talk about that. And also, I think a learning environment gives you more opportunity to understand each other as well. Um, and it's also much less threatening compared to a real environment. And it might just break down the barriers more. Yeah, yeah. I'm really interested in um, gamification. Mm. So um, basically anything can be fun and that fun and the topic are not connected and that making a game out of learning is actually a really positive thing to do. And there's this thing called the gamification loop 
and it basically describes a set of processes that you can use to make something more engaging to motivate people and anyone who's played Angry Birds will understand the gamification loop to some extent um, and anything with an online leaderboard will have had experience with the gamification uh, on some level but I personally find this really really empowering for me as a motivational tool and also to see as a sort of statistical tool to see which areas that I'm good at and which areas that I'm bad at and to not necessarily compete with others but compete with myself um, and this is something that I, I've got when I was doing postgraduate medical exams as well you end up wanting to increase your scores in certain subjects just because not because of the direct you know the the very indirect notion that you're going to your care for patients is going to be better but just because I want to increase my statistics in this Angry Birds type game so that's interesting and I'd like to see more of that especially since a lot of the education is moving online because I find mm. that e-learning tools are the things that I've had to do on e-learning uh, are important useful but my god are they boring <laughs> have you not found just what do you mean fire safety training? Oh. <laughs> this fire extinguisher for this one. This is a fire door. This is a fire door that doesn't work with electricity. They're all red now, aren't they? Why I don't know. I haven't, done, I haven't done the training in some time. Well, we the don't fire, have, fire at Podmedics, we didn't have fire extinguisher training. No. But it's a good point. Maybe I should find something. Yeah, write that down. So what do you think, Wake Young? Gamification. Uh, so essentially you, you had a nice little community of people that you would go back to. So I guess there was some kind of, um, I mean, what motivated you to go and do that reading? So you said that the, the lecturer or, or the facilitator would say, that, you know, we're going to talk about this topic next week, make sure you go and read. But there must have been something about the group that also motivated you rather than just your quest for knowledge to help patients. Oh, the motivation was very simple. I wanted to pass my exam. <laughs> right. And was it purely that the whole time? See, I think that exams have this incredible, incredible way of focusing your, your, uh, your attention. So I, I, for this particular thing, of course, the, the main drive of it was um, uh, the exams. But if I were to be going into a learning group with four to five people, and the success of that learning group uh, depends on everyone having to work together. And if certain people, and, and maybe you have to earn your right to stay within that learning group, and if you don't put the effort in and don't contribute as much as others, maybe you should get kicked out or something. Maybe you know that's a form of gamification. You, you, only, you only learn with people that you choose to learn with. <laughs> I don't think yeah, so but great. just the fact that you're sitting in a group of people is a form of gamification. Yeah, mm. I think so. Because you can naturally, as someone is speaking, giving a response to an image or a patient or whatever, you're assessing that and you're thinking what your response would have been and you're intrinsically rating it. Mm. And that's one of the reasons that it's so effective. And that's going back to uh, your point about the, Ed, that when you were learning uh, for your sort of OSCE uh, Viva type situations, you would do it in a group and you would talk about an image. And there's something about that learning in a group that's incredibly motivational i mean no one wants to seem stupid um and and if there was a topic that you you know that you maybe did look stupid over or you realized you didn't know as much as your peers that would be instantly recognizable to you and probably you'd be quite motivated to go away and learn about that topic in your own time exactly or even better someone else can explain it to you exactly 
And that's something that's very difficult to get online. So the, yeah. these massively open online courses or just watching a YouTube video, that's actually quite difficult. So I wouldn't pretend for a second that the future of online ed- medical education is going to be totally online. But with these MOOCs, <laughs> actually, groups do spring up. So Facebook groups spring up. Twitter mm-hmm. um, is, is an incredible tool for that kind of thing. And people go on these uh, meetups uh, at different locations to, to have that kind of out-of-class experience to try and recreate the kind of conversations that I guess you would be having in a, in a close-knit group. Yeah. And that's my, so, that's been, that's definitely been my experience. I mean, um, this is the final year I've, I've done it, but um, for the last couple of years, I've held a final um, for students from Imperial and, and some from Barts, actually, I've held sort of weekly going up to their exams, finals, um, small group sessions actually here at my flat. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that I basically do nothing. I'm basically the facilitator. So they come three or four of them, five of them. Sometimes they sit on the sofa, uh, they look at some slides, which I've some images that I've prepared and they just talk. Um, and it works incredibly well. I want to come to uncle Ed's house and look at some images. (laughs) (laughs) on, on On that point, do you not think we are missing a trick actually in postgraduate education that we do not get? one specialty teaching another specialty, but not the consultant teaching registrars. But, you know, Stephen, come and teach me some neurology and I come and teach you some hematology. And maybe one of your bosses could sit in with it, but not actually do the teaching. Yeah, I don't think any of my bosses will be particularly uh, perturbed by the fact one registrar teaching another. I think that we, we there's a lot to learn um, from all of our peers and, and not necessarily at registrar level. I think um, the notion that your level somehow dictates the uh, whether you're correct on a particular topic or not is is mm. a bit outdated and old-fashioned. Um, but if I, I think uh, there's a, was a proverb or something, but to be wise, you have to be willing to learn from all sorts of different people, be that people in a different profession to you, physios, OTs, um, whether that be people, uh, you know, ju- your junior, perhaps even medical students who you know, may have done a dissertation or something on a topic that you know nothing about and you're a fool to think that you can't learn from them. I think these kind of things, um, it's it's hard to, to schedule that kind of thing in, but definitely one registrar to another cheating each other, um, it, it can only be a good thing. And I remember one very wise person told me that if you ever want to learn something really well, you need to know how to teach it to someone else. Yeah. And that kind of completes the loop. Completes the loop. Fantastic. Mm. Right. So um, on that note, um, it was great. And um, if uh, you guys want to say bye until next time. Bye bye. See you soon. All right. Bye.